Um, good. Well, awesome. Just wanted to say a special welcome to those of you who are uh, newer visiting. Really glad that you're here with us. Uh, we just love to sit under the teached word. We love to worship Jesus through through that and through a number of other ways. Like we uh, just sang, we sing songs because we believe that singing to God is not only commanded, but it, it nourishes us in a significant way as we remind ourselves and remind each other of who God is and what he's done primarily in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we love to, to sing. We love to sit under uh, this word, the word of God, which we believe is revelation from God, not speculation of God. We believe it's the only perfect thing that, that God has given us outside of himself in his uh, incarnate son. And so we love to read it because we find that more often it reads us than we actually read it itself. And we also worship Jesus each week by observing the Lord's Supper. It does not give grace. It does not give righteousness. It does not draw you uh, closer to God in the sense of standing. Jesus alone does those things, but he gave us this meal uh, to his church so we would receive and remember the saving benefits of what his son did on the cross and through his life and and death and resurrection alone. And then we also uh, are a glad people that love to be generous because uh, Jesus was generous in giving us himself. We give in the silver, blocks, silver boxes on the back wall. Uh, we don't pass a plate and uh, we don't look or want your money if you're new visiting or seeking out or learning about this Jesus. We want you to have him. He is the most valuable treasure you can own and uh, live and walk with. So uh, we're grateful that, that you're here with us. Just wanted to say a, a brief word from if you were here last week. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, James is not a book. Look, I knew when we, uh, when we picked James to teach through that it wasn't going to be soft. Okay, I didn't know that. I, I didn't think, hey, it's not going to lay weight on me. It's not going to lay weight on us. And last week in particular, I just want you to know uh, that the fruit that is reverberating from last Sunday is deeply, deeply encouraging. Um, I had multiple phone calls and multiple emails and uh, hearing about growth groups and hearing about the ways that, that God is using his word to help us walk in patience and humility with one another as he continues to form a greatly diverse church, which we love to see happen, um, was, was deep joy to myself, to the elders, and uh, to each of you. So I, I just want you to know that we're actually also praying about uh, continuing to walk in this in grace and, and, and wise ways to do that and helpful ways to do that. Uh, to continue to resource and encourage uh, us as we, we learn what it means and, and even uh, look in our own hearts and see prejudices uh, that we don't even realize are there. So um, that, that's a first step. Just the fact that I, I received notes from some of you going, man, I, it was the first time in my life I've even acknowledged uh, that there, there's prejudice in me that there's partiality in me, was a win, okay? Uh, listen, in, in Bergen County, right, high fence, long driveway, big yard, Bergen County, that is a win to know that people are beginning to look over the fence at one another, not only in our neighborhoods, but in this room and going, okay, so I've got differences, I've got experiences that aren't necessarily shared, and, and James and God himself is gonna say, hey, this is a serious issue. Uh, the ways that we interact with one another and understand one another and, and work to see this glorious Lord kind of um, unearth these things and, and rid ourselves of this, this stupidity that is and the silliness that is uh, prejudice and racism and all these things. And we are a race bound by God in his blood-bought son, Jesus Christ, where we will all share glory uh, with the nations one day is, is of dire importance. And so um, just know, pray with us and for us and continue to walk in grace and humility as we uh, long to do this. So um, we're going to be in, in James chapter 2. Uh, you just heard Pastor McKinney uh, read this text. And uh, here I, I want to say from the front, here's, here's my hope for us. This is always my hope for us. My hope is that um, we as a people would anchor ourselves in one glorious reality, uh, one glorious truth, um, that you would find all of your delight, all of your joy, and all of your assurance in knowing that you are fully forgiven, fully loved, fully adopted, fully given the righteous, obedient life of Jesus Christ, not because you did anything, but because he did everything, okay? As soon as you start to do anything, it ruins everything, okay? So uh, we wanna make sure you stand there, that your hope is there, that it's fixed there. Listen, if you've been with us since day one, which is only 18 of you, uh, when we planted four years ago, you remember that this is the message we've been built upon that we will continue to celebrate and share and I said, if it ever stops, if, if Jesus ever stops getting glory for salvation or being heralded as the only one who gifts newness of life and gifts righteousness to those who are sinful, then we should shut these doors. So um, I want you to be rooted there. I want you to be anchored there. But, but here's the thing. Uh, James is good. James is wise. He's going to lean into a text that's helpful for us that, that have assurance there, that have our, our feet rooted there and those of us who don't. And um, James chapter 2, verse 14 is the text that comes up uh, next which is highly debated, uh, highly controversial. You 
hear people discuss it. It actually uh, it is largely discussed with church history and the Protestant Reformation and uh, Catholics and Protestants splitting, and uh, there's a lot here. So we're going to just skip it and go to James 3, okay? <laughs> now we're going to be in James 2. I said we love to look at the full counsel of God and dive in. So, so here, um, as, as we land in this text that you heard Mike read, here, here's the dance that I'm always having to walk with you. Um, on the one hand, there are those of you in this room that, that we shepherd, that we pastor, that we love, who are blood-bought, sincere, genuine citizens of the kingdom of God. And you love him, and you pursue him, and you are still wrongly filled with guilt, condemnation, and shame. Um, now listen, I want you to remember that, that Jesus died not just to save you from the essence of your sin, he actually died to remove the shame Okay, so some of you are, are continuing to walk and you heap on yourself a yoke that Jesus has not asked you to carry. Uh, and you live in condemnation, you live in shame, and Jesus is going, I already, I already took that for you. You're fully covered in my son. So you don't need to continue to put shame and, and unnecessary condemnation upon yourself. Romans 8, we are no longer condemned at all in Jesus Christ. We're no longer under the law. It's not God going, hey, let's go back to the Ten Commandments. Get out your scantron. Two out of five, that stinks. Try again. Okay, he, he doesn't do that. He's not trying to do that with us. And um, so what I don't want to do is snuff out Maybe for some of you, the smallest wick that's burning. I want to sustain you. I want you to know that Jesus holds you firm to the end, that he's the one who does the work in you, that he's the one alone who gets glory. He does everything. He does all of this. Um, yet there are others of us, on the other hand, and it pains me to consider and know that you believe you're a Christian and you're not. Um, and, and you think because you have morality or have spirituality or because you know the Christian jargon or because you grew up in a Christian family, somehow that's just kind of osmosis, kind of uh, leaned over to you, that, that you believe more in Jesus. Like if you're a musician like Frank Sinatra or if you're an athlete like Jackie Robinson or if you're like into history like George Washington, you believe in these historical realities, these historical figures, but they don't transform you. You just know a lot about him. And the danger is you've grown up hearing so much about this Jesus that you can spit great theology, even argue great theology, and you live behind this veneer that is totally dry, stale, and empty. Uh, there is no re repentance. There's only rebellion. There is only admittance of who he is, no submission to who he is. There is a lip service to him, but no lifestyle that backs it up. And so um, James is going to get after us here a little bit and go, hey, um, if you claim to know this Jesus, if you claim to have faith in this finished work, man, he, he cried out on the cross, it is finished, right? Fully finished. Then, then this should evidence itself. Uh, there should be fruit in your life. And so out of the gate, it's super important to understand what this passage is saying and what it's not saying. Okay? So before we even dive into verse 14, um, here's what it's not saying. Um, James is not comparing faith and works. He's not comparing them, okay? They're not enemies. So he's not going, oh, here's faith and here's works. This is good, this is bad. Um, what he's doing is he's comparing living faith versus dead faith. Okay, and you really need to understand that as we, as we drive into verse 14. He's comparing living faith versus dead faith. So uh, let's look at James 14 because here's what James is going to say. Faith alone does save you, but it's a certain kind of faith. It's a faith that is outworking in love, in works, in love for God. A faith that does not lead to that and only leads you then to only being deceived and you might be entering into a rest that is not yours. Uh, so let's go to verse 14. Uh, what good is it, my brothers? Now, remember, stay in context. <laughs> he, 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 is, he is not changing the scene. I, I hear guys <laughs> preach this text and extract and go, man, this is crazy out of nowhere. We've been talking about this for the last three weeks. So if you've been with me sitting under the preach word the last three weeks, you know, James hasn't changed his tone. He hasn't, you know, didn't bait and switch on you. He has consistently laid before you, this is what true belief looks like. This is what true faith looks like. Don't show partiality. It should bend outwards in the ways that you handle and, and view others in this lens. It should uh, allow this orphan widow, vulner, vulner, the vulnerable, right? We, we long to love them. It, you're not just a hearer of the word, you're a doer. So uh, this is not new for James. He's not all of a sudden uh, getting schizophrenic and going on this rant, okay? This is, this is continuing to be James. And he says then, okay, for what good is it? He's, he's summing up the arguments he's already laid before us the last three weeks, my brothers, if someone says he has faith then but doesn't have works, can that faith save him? 
Now remember, he's writing to mainly a Jewish audience. Some were Christians, some weren't. It's a large church in Jerusalem, which is uh, scattered in the, the dispersion. This is what we learned. And, and here he's, he's writing these things, and he's showing that there is a faith that doesn't work. There's a faith that is dead. There is a faith you can have that isn't real. Now here's what James is not arguing. He's not arguing works must be added to faith to be saved. He never says that. We're going to see this. He never says that faith must be added to works to be saved. He's already told us how we were saved. And this is where you have to understand good reading of your Bible. If you go back to James chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, I said, let that be your diving board for the, the rest of James. He said, you and I, those of us who are Christians, were brought forth by the word of truth and became a first fruit of his creation. What that means is he took his first fruit, his first and best, Jesus Christ, and he had him slaughtered for you. He had his righteous, obedient life as a substitute in your place for your sin. It's, it's given to you. You're, you're brought forth in that. You're brought from death to life. You're then made a first fruit of his creation by his work alone. Nothing that you've done, nothing you can boast in, nothing you can acclaim for yourself. He goes, okay, so he's saying that's already happened. He's already let you know that. Now, coming out of him, making you a first fruit, he's going, there isn't much fruit. You claim to be a first fruit, but I don't see any fruit. I don't see any evidence that you're alive, that you were made alive. He's not telling you to add anything to your works. Jesus saves, sanctifies, and holds us firm. Rather, James is arguing like he's been already. True religion, true genuine faith is characterized by a life. There's movement and maturity. I'm always going to say there's progress, not perfection. But there's movement and maturity. So there is a movement towards being non-partial. There's movement towards God revealing sin in your life and you not just being a hearer going humana, 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 but leaving and actually desiring to put sin to death through the power of the Spirit through what Jesus Christ did for you. There's an earnestness in you. There's repentance in you. There's at least movement to some degree in your life if you claim to have true faith. Now listen, when James says faith, he's talking about trusting God. We could, we've done this. When we went through the Gospel of Luke, we've looked at this. Faith, in essence, is trusting God and then obeying God, seeking to obey God, okay? But I mean, you have to have faith first that he exists, that he is good, that he has saved you, that he's done all of these things, and then we work in obeying him. And you're not obeying him to gain love from him. You're obeying him because you love what he's done for you. We, I talked about this two weeks ago that I don't come to my son Jackson and say, hey, hey, Jackson, um, I might love you, but let's see how you pan out this, this week. My love's not predicated on that. My love is predicated that I already have affections for him, and then he, in response to that great love, desires to be led in obedience. He flourishes under that type of father heart of God, right? And that's what James is revealing here, that if we have been saved by this good father. So faith is talking about trusting God and seeking to obey God, even if you do it imperfectly, Okay, so no one in here is batting a thousand. No one in here can say, hey, I have, I have loved him. I have served him. I have given myself to him perfectly and fully. That's not what James is saying. He's saying there should be movement maturity. There should be growing love in these ways. So that's what he means when he says faith. And when he says works, I believe he's talking about the royal law that he just mentioned. You love God. There's growing love for God, which leads to love for others. So hear me. Here's what his argument will never be and cannot be that you must add works to your faith to validate your faith. Rather, legitimate faith leads to an ongoing love for God and an ongoing love for those around you. That is stemmed from, motivated from, a great desire to glorify his name. All right, so James says, if you claim to trust God and desire to obey God, if that's you, okay? Yeah, I love God. Yeah, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he saved me. Um, then you desire to not only trust him, but obey him. So he gives uh, illustration. He says if there's no movement, it's useless. It's dead faith. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is showing here that, that here's where faith without works breaks down really quickly. And th this isn't hard. Lip service without lifestyle is dead faith. Uh, you, can, you can tell your spouse all day long, I love you, I love you, I love you. But, but if there's no evidence of that, um, it's just lip service. 
And, and here's what we remember as Christians, right? That all that we've been given by God is ultimately for God and for others. So um, God does not give to us that we might just increase our lifestyle. I'm not saying that it's wrong to steward and to save and be financially responsible. Those are godly things, good things. I'm saying, though, primarily the lens by which the Christian views what he has, views his stewardship, is I already own the ones, has the one who owns it all, so I'm not enslaved by these things. Right? I'm free to give, free to be generous, free to look to others and not just to my own interests. Because the gospel so compelled me, the gospel so controlled me, the gospel has so transformed me. And so he's showing how useless it is to say that you love him but be spiritually constipated. Right? Like you're just backed up and I don't need to continue moving there. Right? Like you, you get that picture, you get that reality. I mean, you claim all these things and there is just something that's not allowing you to burst forth by who you really are. I mean, you're just, you're not acting how God has already made you to be. It's position before practice. You have this position in God, and then you have this practice that follows. And so he's showing us that we, are, we become Christians. We're extensions of his body. We're conduits of his grace. It's impossible not to be. You do not become a Christian, then somehow you're severed as arms, ears, eyes, and noses and mouths. Like, like you're attached to him. You literally abide in him, and he and you, there's this union with Christ. You're inseparably linked to him. And so his heart begins to flow out of your heart. His mind begins to flow out of your mind. His desires begin to flow out of your desires. Right? Those things become one and the same. And this is why James says here it's useless. It's like you seeing a poor man eating food and clothing, and you just quote a verse at him, tell him about Jesus, instead of being Jesus to him. What use is your faith then? Um, words don't warm anybody. Good intentions never gave clothing. It's a hard word. He's saying what's really there in our hearts. He's showing the outworking of our faith, just building off of the last three weeks. You know, um, sometimes I feel like we can just pat ourselves on the back by being convicted. Right? I was convicted. I cried. I cried. I sobbed even. Did you see me? I was a pool. And James is saying, um, good intentions doesn't do anything. Conviction doesn't do anything if it's not led to repentant change. Uh, it doesn't really matter what you say if there is not action tied to that. It's like, a, it's like the Super Bowl tonight. I'm sure all you guys are aware. And let's say Tom Brady... And he gets the pats out, and I hope they lose. But let's say he gets the pats out, all right? He gets the pats out. They all get in the huddle, the whole team, right? They're identified with his team, all wearing the jersey, and he starts rolling out the plays, right? He rolls out these plays, and they're like, all right, great, and they all head to the bench. You'd say that's silliness, right? That's useless. Why in the world? See, see this is, and, and, then, and let's say, I don't know, who's the guy? For, I don't even care about the Eagles, but, but even though they're two bad teams, but they got a quarterback, right? And he comes out, he calls the play, same thing. Run to the bench. Here, this is how silly it is. James is showing us what we do, man. We all get in the huddle. God calls the play. And we go, all right, great play, God. Head to the bench. And then this is what we do. Oh, partiality. Don't show partiality. Wow, that, that's serious? That, that, that's a glory issue? I don't really care about that. Not going to run that play. Hey, uh, bend outward towards being loving the vulnerable and the orphan and the widow. Well, that, that's not really a good play either. Oh, be a hearer and, and, and a doer. Don't just listen to things, but actually do. And I'll run to the bench. Here's what we do. We gather every Sunday. We all get together. Hey, can't wait for God to call another play that we're not going to run. Right? Oh, I, I can't wait to get in there and hear what God's going to say. I can't wait to sit under the preached word of God. We believe as Christians, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but if you're a Christian, I would bet, if I'm a betting man, that you believe this is, leads to life in the bottom place of your gut, that what God says goes, and I'm telling you, if you live like that, you're deceived and probably don't have saving faith. If you just gather on Sundays and go, oh, cool, I can't wait. He's got to call another play. Oh, convict me, and then I'm going to leave and live the same, totally unchanged. I'm saying the Spirit of God might absolutely not be in you. And this is a good, loving word from James because he cares so much for this church. That's why I said a number of weeks ago, man, I, I'm more compelled about giving you the truth of God and the whole counsel of God than how many people return. I don't have time for that. And we need to look at the word and say, Here, here's what it says. That's what James does for us. 
because he loves these people in the dispersion. He loves giving them the truth of God because he wants to invite them into joy, invite them into life. So my, my question to you is, where are you fundamentally just like these people? And it might not be with, with the poor. It might be with just conviction of sin. It might be with sexual sin. It might be with idolatry of some kind. It might be with greed. It might be with anger. Might, I don't know what it's with, but, but where is there a, a bent in you where you totally enjoy disregarding and discarding what God has said? Go, man, great play, God. Can't wait to hear another one next week that I'm not going to run. And that's what he's shown us here. That's what he's revealing here. And he's saying, don't be deceived. That's why that don't be deceived has come up multiple times before we've gotten to this place. Don't be misled See, James is saying some of you have dead faith. It's a, you said, Jesus said himself, good tree bears fruit. If you see two trees and one has fruit and one doesn't, guys, look, this is common sense. If you see fruit on a tree, the fruit doesn't make it alive. It reveals that it is. The fruit itself does not give it life. It just reveals that it is alive and that it's not dead. So listen, some of you are rooted in spirituality, rooted in morality. You're not rooted in Jesus. You're rooted in tradition. You're rooted in your works, your merits, your rights. You're not rooted in what Jesus Christ alone has done. You can go to Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, Judaism, any other system outside the Christian faith, and it will to some degree say you abide to certain laws, rituals, codes. In some way, you will be on a platform to boast in what you have achieved at the end of it all, and the gods or God may let you in and be pleased. And Christian faith says, no, it's not what we earn, but what Jesus earned for us. That's why we celebrate him. And look what he says in verse 18. I love it. He's going to show an argument that still exists in the church today as people are listening to him preach. But some of you will say, and I promise this had to have been a real conversation. He's not hypothetical. You know the passive aggressive, you know? Hey, some of you guys might be thinking this, right? Well, he knows that people are thinking this. Look at what he says. But some of you will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one, you do well. That's him just going, good job. And then he says, even the demons believe and shudder. Uh, James reveals this argument still going on in the church today. Oh, yeah, you have faith? Oh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I have the works. Oh, yeah, you believe that God will save you? And Yeah, yeah, but I, I do something. Man, look at my works. So you have the faith minus works people and the works minus faith people. So you have the works minus the faith people. Let's say, man, um, you got to do, you got to tithe, you got to speak in tongues, you got to get baptized, you got to give more, you got to serve more, you got to love more, you got to, I don't know, maybe slain a bull, you got to do all these things, right, so we can finally get to the place that we're supposed to. And then you got the faith alone people without the works going, oh man, uh, pull down legalist. Man, God's sovereign, don't need to pray, don't need to go, don't need to give, don't need to do. And you know what, let's just sit around and talk about good theology and admire Jesus from a distance and wait until he comes back. Right? This is, these are the two camps, right? And James is saying, these aren't at odds. These things don't oppose each other. The faith people should be the works people, and the works people should be the faith people. James says here, correct theological understanding alone is not salvation. Oh. And James said it. God said it, theological, even correct, theological understanding alone is not equal salvation. Friends, do you hear him? This is serious. This is why he says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Listen, a devout Jew would always quote this starting off his day, Deuteronomy 6, that God is one. There's a, every other system belief, they believe in a plurality of gods. We know our God is one, one God, right? Three distinct persons, Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They would recite this, say this, and he's basically saying, uh, you believe that, right? The demons believe in monotheism, and they shudder. Uh, so what, John 3, 16, God so loved the world, gave his only son, you believe that? So what, demons believe that? You believe in all these things that are true with them, and yet they shudder. Even the demons believe, and they're not in great shape. Uh, this made me think of 
passages in the Gospels where Jesus confronts the demonic. You know, if you spend time in Luke, we got to get into some of that. But if you go to like Mark 5, that's a great section of scripture where you see the demoniac. And I remember when I took my trip to Israel, I remember actually being there with the, he sent the demons and the pigs and they, they, they hurled themselves off the cliff. But I remember ever since being there and reading and continuing to be reminded of that passage of scripture, here's what's amazing. You, if you read Mark 5, you see that these demons acknowledge his deity, acknowledge everything about him and are still terrified. They, here's what's amazing. They still understand that he's more powerful than them. Like, they, they still, they even know every other false faith. And they shudder. And I, I'm, I'm reading this. That, that word to shudder is like the hair bristles. Like, you know who's in charge. You know who's God. You know who's sovereign. You know who's in authority, right? It's not, it's not just I believe these things about this God. It's I, I believe this God is in charge. I believe what he says goes. I believe he's the judge. I'm not. I'm going to come under him. Right? And, and here's the thing. I'm going, demon shudder, and I bet there is a large percentage of people that come into church every Sunday and don't shudder at all. And he's going, man, even the demons shudder. Even the demons hear the name of this. He says, Jesus most high God in Mark 5. They appeal to his name. They don't, they don't give him other names or, or demean him. They know he can smite them by looking at them. And, and, and James is giving this illustration to show something really, really, really profound. And really, 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 really important. He's using the demonic to reveal dead faith. So you can have an understanding of Jesus without any affection for Jesus. He says even the demons have correct theology. So just three things kind of define dead faith looking at the demonic. Number one, um, lip service and not love. Um, If there's no growing love at all for God and Jesus, that's not a living faith. That's just lip service. It's just correct theology, right? We always want the truths of God's word to penetrate our hearts. doesn't mean that you wane in love or there are ebbs and flows, but the spirit of God continues to keep that love flamed. Um, the other one is maybe you're just rebellious and not repentant. Um, and and that, this is really important. I mean, how do you respond to the conviction of God's word? How do you respond to the grace shown to you in the gospel? If it's just continued rebellion and not repentance, then you probably have dead faith. Like at least least there's a pattern of repentance. That's what it's always been in the scriptures. Not perfection, but progress. I mean, this sin grieves me. I I don't want it. I mean, everything in the New Testament, the Bible will evidence for us that if we're made new in Jesus, we don't want to go back to our old self. Like we're a new creation. We're not a tweaked old version, right? We are literally made new. New spirit, new mind, new heart. And even in the moments where we fall and stumble, we continue to go, God, I need you. God, help me. God, I want you. Help me. If there's not even a percentage of that in you, then you may have dead faith. And lastly is you admit a lot, but you never submit. This is what the demons do. They know everything about God. They can admit every correct thing about God, but they don't submit to him as Lord. They do not come under him as their authority. I mean, this is Lord and Savior, right? This is theology you probably heard your whole life growing up. Man, yeah, he's my Lord and Savior, right? Well, for most of us, he's Savior. Fire insurance, don't want to burn. Parents came to us when we were young. Hey, want to go to hell or heaven? Uh, which one's nicer? Heaven. Okay, so I'll pick that one. I mean, that's, that's a lot of us growing up in the church, man. James is getting at these guys going, hold on, you can admit things about God, but what's the, what's the reason? You've got to submit to him as Lord, right? It's not just, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. It's, I, he's my God. I see him as good. He's got a father's heart. He's for me, not against me. He's calling me into life, into joy, away from what will destroy me. He deserves glory, honor, and praise and worship. I am a glory thief, and I want to give myself glory, honor, and praise. And so I'd rather be king of my life, king of my throne, king of my heart than him. And I'm telling you, if you just admit stuff, and don't submit to him, then you probably have dead faith. It's just serious stuff that James is talking about. And that's what he's revealing here, using the demonic as an example. You could probably say that what we have is demonic faith. So see, if someone didn't know you were a Christian, they didn't hear you were a Christian, didn't see the fish on your car, didn't see you carrying your Bible, okay? Like, if they had no way to know you were a Christian, right, would they know? No bumper sticker. Christian, they didn't know your kids went to Christian school. 
Would they know you're a Christian? That's what James is basically asking. Because here's the thing, and it's really silly. Sometimes we act like everyone outside these walls are just like Hitlers and Bin Ladens, right? Like they're just so evil. Everybody outside this wall, they're just so evil. Um, and so we say, oh, yeah, they're going to know I'm a Christian because I'm nice. Because <laughs> you're nice? Man, I, I know people nicer than you, no offense, who, who are not Christians, right? I know people nicer than me that are not Christians. Oh, well, because I give. Oprah gives. <laughs> Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, they love to give, man. They're, they're touring Africa. They're like throwing money at orphans. I mean, because they love to give, that's going to that's gonna, that's gonna set you apart. Oh, I don't know. I, I love my neighbor. Yeah, I just saw my neighbor mowing the, my neighbor's yard the other day. Well, I love people. Okay, so everyone outside these walls doesn't love people? Have you, have you ever, like, thought about this? Like, distinguishing this? Because otherwise, I mean, what, what, what does he mean here? What is he saying here? And I think it's something really, really, really important because um, there are things that the Christian does that the world cannot do. And those are the things. So you go to Romans 2. No one is good. No, not one. Here's how the text has been abused. Nothing you do, Christian or non, is good. No, serving the hungry is a good thing. I have, I have a non-believing neighbor that does really good things. They're good. Um, what the Bible means is none of those things are good spiritually. None of them are motivated with an honest desire to bring glory to God and renown to his name. Um, no matter how good of a thing a non-Christian does for the world, there is in some part of it a self-seeking motivation. It, it, there's nothing in you, if you're not a Christian, to actually want to do good, not to get glory for yourself, but to solely give it away to God, to his fame. And, and so here, there are things we do, man. The Bible says love your enemies, right? Man, reporters don't know what to do with that. Man, you love your enemies? Man, now there's something outside of you that's at work in your heart. There, there's gospel-shaping love. Wait, wait, a sustained marriage? Like, like we're, we're two people? I mean, have every right to just leave? And, man, there's some covenant holding them together? That they're, they're still abiding? They're still staying? There's, there's a spouse who's done wrongly against? They're still saying, no, there's a covenant done to me outside of here that is so much greater than a marriage. So I'm, I'm a picture now of this covenant that, that'll blow your mind. And now I'm a mini picture of that greater covenant. Then the world starts going, man, what's other world? there. There are things that start to happen to you when you become a Christian where the world can't explain it. They see love they can't explain. They see Jesus say, hey, yeah, do all those good deeds so that they might glorify the Father in heaven. Not so that you get any fame. And not that we don't have spaces or, or times where we do that. There's always places in us, but he redirects us. He helps us. We know that's the motivation at the end of the day and how he's made us new. All of a sudden, right, um, we don't give just like the world gives. We start giving to where we depend on God in faith. We know that God's going to come through for us. Uh, the non-Christian only gives to a degree where it's safe. The Christian says, no, I'm, I'm going to keep giving. I, I know that all that I have is God's. It's not mine. So it's how much can I hold on to, not how much will I let God have. There's a total reversal that happens in your lens that's what James is getting at here. You're now participating in a way where it shows that you've made new. You're made new. So James now will show faith alone saves you, but not faith that is alone. Faith alone saves you, but not a faith that is alone. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? This is, you know what he just did? Oh, so, so you're, you're saying, oh, no, I believe. You know, I don't have works. He goes, you're foolish. You're foolish. You can come in here, you can play the card, you can even get disciple groups and, and wear the veneer and I'm awesome and this isn't really a big deal and realizing, not realizing your, your heart is so sick and so stained and so in need of redemption, need of regeneration, need of help, need of the kindness of God. He goes, you're just being foolish. 
And look at what he says. That faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. A faith that is alone the same thing. Faith can't be alone. It has to be evidenced. It has to be justified with works. It has to be evidenced and shown. James shifts, right, to living faith. Okay, so there's dead faith, guys. Uh, here's living faith. And, of course, the first illustration he'll give to a predominantly Jewish audience is Father Abraham. Okay, you guys all know Abraham. I mean, he was their spiritual father. He was the one that the Jews really respected. And he was the one who God came to, right, in Genesis 12 and said, hey, I'm going to give you a son. I know it doesn't seem like it because you're old in age and your wife's barren, but I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to give you a son, and then your son's going to have children. And through his line, this Messiah is going to come, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. There's going to be forgiveness of sin. There's going to be newness of life through your offspring. And then Abraham has the promised son, and then God says, hey, take the promise and take him up and sacrifice him on the altar. His name's Isaac. And as Abraham, faith, trusts God and obeys God, he starts walking up. Isaac's got wood on his back, right? Symbolic of Jesus Christ who will walk with the cross on his back to his crucifixion. And I love this. He almost gets to the top, and his son's going, where's the ram, Dad? And Abraham's going, just trust him, son. Let's trust him. He'll provide his faith. And then he gets to the top and God says, I'm going to give a substitute. Foreshadowing that the Father will send his only son to give a substitute for a ransom to save sinners. And as you're, as you're watching all of this, God intervenes. And it's interesting, if you read the passage, the Lord stops Abraham, and as he stops him, he says this. He says, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your only son. He goes, Abraham's faith is evident now. I mean, it was, it was that moment, right? The scriptures say where I saw that he trusted me. I saw that he obeyed me. I saw that I was more valuable than anything. I was his glorious Lord. He was the one that I give worship to and adoration to. And it was that moment, the scriptures say, that that's where he, he trusted the Lord. James is saying, what if Abraham said, yeah, I trust God, but I'm not going to do anything. Yeah, I don't care what he says. I don't care what he asks. Even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, even though it's painful, there is this deep abiding trust in him that, that, okay, what he says goes. I'm submitted to him. I don't admit I trust him. I actually submit to that trust, and I walk in that trust, and I'm evidencing that trust by my actions. And James says it was in that moment where it was revealed that he had living faith. And he even says here, listen, his faith was credited to him as righteousness before he did that. It does not give him righteousness. That, that act of carrying Isaac did not somehow merit something. That was already his. He was already covered. He says it in the text, but he's showing that that living faith in him was revealed when he carried Isaac up the mountain. There's something otherworldly there. There's something at work there that's not normal. There's a truster that's outside of his ability. And James is showing even this father Abraham who you love. The tree with fruit does not make it alive, but reveals that it is. It's the same with Abraham. Then some of you might be going, oh, well, that's Abraham. Blessed by God, given promises. James goes, okay, let's look at a prostitute. Right? Get Rahab. Verse 25. In the same way, in the same way. Oh, father Abraham, he's spiritual, father of many nations. Of course you're going to use him as an illustration. Okay. Rahab, prostitute in Jericho, was she not in the same way justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Rahab's a prostitute in Jericho. Listen. Rahab never desired to be that. If there's some space in your mind right now where you're like, Wicked sinner, condemned. I mean, of course. I mean, how in the world? No, no, no. No one desires that. You know that no girl grows up wanting to be that. 
there's sin, there's wickedness, there's evil, there's stuff that intervenes and causes harm that creates that. And let me just say as a side, you're participating in that through pornography. You're, you're, you're agreeing with that. You're celebrating that. So, so here's Rahab, right? Oppressed by evil, harm, in a mess, can't find her way out, doesn't think there's salvation for her, doesn't think there's kindness for her, doesn't think there's a way out for her. And listen, women in that culture were already treated like second-class citizens, so imagine how Rahab felt. And here, Joshua, he's sending out spies, right, to check out the land which they're going to acquire. And if you know the story, they stumble across Rahab's house, and she knows the authorities are coming, and she also knows God's people are coming, salvation's coming. Hey, uh, hide here, and then she lies to the authorities and says they went that way. Here's what Rahab does here. When she said that and did that, she's committing treason and should be put to death. Um, She's risking her life in trusting God. God has loved me, I'm going to love his people. God has rescued me, I'm going to rescue his people. God has gotten me out of a mess, I'm going to get his people out of a mess. And what uh, James is showing is there's evident change in her. Even in trusting God, I mean, imagine, right? These, These men are coming to my house. I don't know, are they going to abuse me, take advantage of me? I'm trusting you, God. Because see, all of us look constantly in the scriptures for checklists. Just give me something to do. Give me No, trust God. Trust him. The gospel is trusting him. That's not a work, right? That is what we do. We trust him. He's good. He's gracious. He does it all. And that's a fuel for loving God. That's the flame that's fanned into loving others. We trust him. And Rahab here in the scriptures, she's saved. She knows she's a sinner. She knows that she's unloved by the world and likely to she thinks the Lord and he intervenes in some way. She's converted by the people of God, by seeing the people of God. Maybe the gospel was shared. Maybe the future Messiah was said. Maybe she heard it somewhere else. But it's clear because she's in the hall of faith. If you want to read about it, you've got this woman who says, ultimately, no, I'm on God's team. I'm submitted to him and I'm for his people. And I'm going to protect those who are his. And everything shifts. Even if I die, I'll watch out for his because I trust him. She trusts God. She had faith. That's why James says in that text, it's like the body without spirit. Uh, A body without spirit you call a what? A corpse. It's dead. Faith without works is dead. It's not living faith. It's dead faith. So also, he's saying, if you believe in Jesus Christ and have no actions to justify it, verse 24, then you have dead faith. Uh, Romans 10.9 is an example, right? We, we, we love Romans 10.9. Um, Confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's public proclamation. There is evidence that I am I'm saying this, I'm declaring this. But, but listen, um, when you say that, when Paul's writing to the Romans and, and, and they're declaring this reality, um, they're saying that God is God, Caesar is not God. They're saying I could be beheaded for this confession, this allegiance. Okay, so now, I mean, confessing with your mouth is kind of a big deal. Now acknowledging that he's Lord is kind of a big deal. Believing in your heart that he rose again from the dead. He has more power than Caesar. He's greater than Caesar. This God is amazing. All of a sudden now, this this faith is not just some private chant or some private conversation. Yeah, I believe he's Lord. There's got to be some way to evidence it. There's got to be something bearing on you to where you demonstrate and show that you believe that. That's what James is getting at. Now, some of you are maybe sitting here going, I don't still... Yeah, nice sermon, nice cute thoughts, but I mean, uh, Paul and James just always contradict each other, and this passage shows that. I mean, justified by works, and Paul says justified by faith apart from works. In Romans 3, what is it? Um, They're just different patients, so you give different treatments. Um, You you just give different prescriptions for those that have a different need. And James is teaching to people who have heard the gospel, confessing with Jesus, and are not doing anything. And he's saying, do something. Evidence that. Examine your heart. See if you're in the faith, 2 Corinthians. 
You know who Paul's writing to? Paul's writing to primarily a Gentile audience who are baby Christians, new, baby Christians, new Christians, maturing Christians, and they're just panicked. Am I going to hell? Do I need to get circumcised? No. Do I need to slaughter a bull? No. Do I need to get baptized? No. Do you need, well, I don't know. Should I try something just in case Christ didn't cover my sin? No. No, you're covered. Be at ease, friend. Be loved in the gospel. Know that you don't have to get back under the law. You don't have to re-earn what he already earned for you. So, so what do you tell people? I mean, this is, this is just helpful in counseling. This is helpful in shepherding. Listen, um, there are two truths that God is sovereign. God elects, God chooses, God saves. And there's also that you're fully responsible and culpable for your sins. So as I'm pastoring brothers and sisters and people, listen, there are different ways I'm gonna love them and shepherd them. If I'm meeting with a brother or sister who is just struggling and their faith is genuine and they love the Lord and they wanna repent of sin, and man, I'm not gonna be like, man, I don't know. I don't know if you're elect or not. She might figure it out. No, I'm going to say, man, keep repenting. Keep believing. Remember that he has saved you. He will not lose hold of you. John 10, 28, he does not let go of his sheep that are his. You can be totally assured in the grip and grace and salvation of God. And let's say I'm talking to somebody who abuses God's grace. And that, that doctrine of him saving and keeping and choosing and finishing is not what he needs to hear. He needs to hear, you need to repent of your sin. You're culpable for that. Hell is real. Judgment is final. Christ is returning. And he's a good God who offers salvation to sinners. And you can respond. He says whoever comes to him, he will not cast out. Would you come to Jesus? Would you lean into Jesus? Would you make him your Lord, not just admit things? Would you turn to repentance and not just rebellion? Would you actually grow in love for him and not just give him lip service? I mean, the way that you counsel people is different based upon your audience. That's just what James and Paul are doing. They were friends. You can read Galatians. Man, they met up together, had meals together. They're saying the same thing, just in different ways to different patients because that's what they need to hear. So listen, if you're writing to religious people who know everything and do nothing, what are you going to say? Do something. <laughs> Be careful. Examine your heart. This is what true living faith looks like. If you're writing to people who are doing a lot but don't know that Jesus does everything, what are you going to tell them? Man, rest in what's yours. Stop worrying about trying to earn what's already been earned for you. He's a smart pastor. He's a wise counselor. And for some of us, it's helpful today in different ways. He's just explaining we're justified by a faith, but it is a working faith. It's a faith that shows it's alive. I'm going to keep saying this. Look at two trees. One has fruit. The fruit doesn't make it alive. It reveals that it is. That's all James is saying. Don't overcomplicate it. Some of you are going, well, what do I do? Um, I'm going to encourage you to do what I've been asking and encouraging you to do since the first sermon I preached four years ago and hopefully hasn't changed. Repent and believe. And then position yourself under all the grace that God has given you in his son Jesus Christ. And that grace is the covenant community. That grace is Sunday morning. That grace is the word of God. That grace is discipleship and growth groups. That grace is prayer. That grace is fellowship. That grace is getting under the place where God can minister and nourish and continue to feed you well and encourage you and build you up in the faith. And listen, if you're here and you're just simply moral, simply spiritual, simply following tradition, and you're, you're still a sinner, in need of a savior, and you don't need to do those things to earn what God has already freely earned for you in Jesus Christ. You need him, you need to trust him, he fully does it. Church does not save you, church does not sanctify you in the sense of the active agent. God alone does that and then uses those as graces. So none of those graces we position ourselves with under the work of God, none of those things save you, they more fully inflame your heart with love for God and love for his people, the royal law. And that's what we want. That's what we want to see. So Christian, if you're a Christian, repent and believe. That never stops. Repent of the areas that God's exposing and continue to believe in his finished work. Listen, for the Christian, man, lean into Jesus who saves you by his works into good works. 
and then he does those works through you. There are more people to save, more people to tell the gospel about, more people to love, more sin to be put to death, more mindsets need to be altered, more desires that need to be changed. There's more mission to advance and more kingdom of God to step into. Christian, don't just sit around. He compels us to go. It's the same love that compelled Jesus out of glory to rescue, seek, save, love, and serve those who he would make his own. Powerful stuff, profound stuff. And listen, don't, don't sit here and say, James and Pastor Mike, you guys are preaching works. No, we're preaching love. Love Jesus. Love others. Love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love his mission. Love what he's called you into. Because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? This glorious Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. This glorious Lord Jesus Christ that has set himself in our hearts so that he might live through us out of our hearts. Let's ask him for help to do that. Lord, I just, I pray in this moment that you would literally divide the hearts and minds in this room that need to be divided rightly. Father, I, I, I want to always walk that line where I do not snuff out wicks that I don't want to blow out and I do not want people wrongly to be deceived and thinking they know you and are part of your family who are not. So Father, would you do the work that only you can do right now? Would you help those that need help? Would you encourage those who are walking in wrong shame, wrong condemnation, Herald the good truth of the finished work of Jesus. May they hear your cry on Calvary. It is done in fullness. The payment was made. Death is defeated. Sin has been triumphed over. The enemy will be made a public spectacle, Colossians 1 now. They will be put to shame. They'll be left naked because of what Jesus did. And God, might you show genuine Christians in this room, Lord, that the spaces you're revealing, that there's not rightness before you? Would you reveal sin? Would you reveal idolatry? Would you reveal other loves? And would you lead them not to rebellion against your name, but re repentance towards you? And God, I ask for those in this room who have maybe believed for years that they know you based on some myth of existing and just simply being a part of the church. Maybe through their morality. Maybe through their attendance. Maybe through even their correct doctrine. But Father, there's no love for you there's no repentance in their heart. There's no submission to you as Lord. God, would you be gracious in this moment and would you save them and make them new and bring them to a place of humility where they can honestly assess their life before you without being deceived. God, hold up, you call it the, the mirror, the law of liberty, this word of God. Hold it up so it just exposes us for who we are. Show us clearly God, rescue them from their own deception. God, would you help us as a family to be doers of this word? Would you help us to continue to walk in the challenges that James has given us as people, as a faith family, as we look to not live in partiality, as we look to be doers, not just hearers, as we look to bend outward towards the vulnerable around us? God, would you help us in that? God, save some this morning and continue sustaining every single child who is yours by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.